Before we get to today's show, we've got a special announcement. More of an opportunity, really. We're guessing that some of our Thinking Out Loud listeners are fans of learning. Well, if you love to learn, this opportunity's for you. We're partnering with Right On Mission to give away a Theology in Evangelism course. Taught by Dr. Sarah Sumner, this course teaches students how to engage non-Christians and nominal Christians alike in theological conversations that are genuine exchanges and not prepackaged formulas for evangelism. This course is for anyone who takes seriously Jesus' mandate for us to go into the world and make disciples. The class runs from March 7th to April 29th. We'll drop links with all of the details in the show notes for this episode. Interested? Here's what you need to do. First, make sure you're following us. Next, give Thinking Out Loud a shout out to your followers on social media, and we'll randomly pick one of you for the course giveaway by March 5th. Be sure to include a link to our podcast, along with the hashtag Thinking Out Loud. Make sure you tag us so we keep track. Again, all you have to do is give Thinking Out Loud a shout out on your socials to put your name in the hat. One last thing, you'll need to be a Christian in order to take this course, for the simple reason that a course on the theology of evangelism won't make much sense to someone who isn't already a part of the church. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth, rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, we're going to dive into, see what I did there? We're going to dive, dive. into the topic of swimming. And in a very uh, unique and one that years ago we probably wouldn't have first seen coming, but uh, has been part of the headlines in the past and will continue to be so. Basically having to do with uh, Penn State and now Yale uh, transgender swimmers. And these are... Individuals who are born biological males who now identify as female and are doing very, 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 very well, uh, essentially breaking all pull and meet records that they've participated in and uh, yeah, just posting phenomenal times across multiple distances and multiple events. The, and I don't know what the NCAA is going to decide with this. This has mainly been a conversation within the Ivy League swimming world at this point. Uh, and there are a number of articles of people s trying to walk a line, even Michael Phelps kind of stuttering over himself, trying to figure out how to talk about this in an appropriate way of, and then teammates of this person saying, look, this person is six foot four. They went through male pu puberty. We have to separate gender from sex and talk about there's a significant change in advantage here. And then others coming back and saying, no. This isn't about fairness. This is transphobia writ large. So we'll start there. And uh, I don't know where this will all go, but let's have let's see if we can come to some helpful guidelines for thinking through what we're seeing culturally and then how we want to engage, uh, express, encourage, uh, caution uh, each other as Christians and those listening along with us. 
So how about there? Let me drop that in your lap. Yeah, I think the incident where I think Michael Phelps was being interviewed about that, about this this whole development, what is really instructive here because it is, it's almost funny to watch him just fall over his words because he's he's walking through a minefield. It's incredibly unsafe territory, especially for him as a celebrity and a swimmer and a major public figure. You know, there, there'll be intense pressure for him to express support for all people and especially these kinds of expressions of identity. But on the other hand, he's a trained athlete and he understands the dynamics of anatomy and biology and how critical they are when it comes to the execution of particular sports. And I think one one critic who is, who is weighing in here basically stated, and this, you might think that it's, it's going to be interesting to use a word like moderate, moderate <laughs> in these kinds of circumstances, but this person would probably be moderate in the sense that she said, I want to support Leah Thomas's decision to identify as a woman, but we must, and Nathan, you, you, you already mentioned this earlier, she says we must make a distinction between gender and biology, I believe is how she put it. And then she just goes on to say, you know, obviously there's a reason that there are women's leagues, and this, this is in order to allow women to compete as professional athletes in the first place because of the unfair advantages of a male body when it comes to many of these sports that use brute strength. And, but you're, you're, but then one of the responses to that from a, a trans person and transgender advocate was, look, when we transition to another gender, we can't cut ourselves up. I think this was the language that was used, kind of visceral language. We can't just say basically, hey, I'm a woman in all of these other circumstances but then when I get into a swimming swimming pool, that goes out the out the window and I'm not I'm not a woman anymore. We can't we are whole persons. And that kind of that brings to the forefront probably some of the major contradictions here. When we're talking in terms of Yeah. Yeah. So well so what we're running into though is the contra- and you talk about this all the time of is there such a thing as a private act, right? So essentially what her teammates are pointing out is saying, look, we, we, we support, uh, her, um, and, and they're happy to say in her personal life and her transition, we support her and we want her to do that. But let's recognize that when this person is swimming here, you have a guy who when swimming in the male category in the men's league was ranked like 460 something in the nation who now when swimming in the female category is by far the top swimmer in the country. So it gets a little dicey there. What we do want to point out, there is a massive, by and large, I mean, and and this is like, you know, the bell curves and all of that. Yes, there are some women who are faster than a percentage of men and all of this and stronger, but we're talking generally speaking uh, across the distribution chart there of the population. So they are swimming slower than they were as a man after taking testosterone um, and suppressing supplements, but that still makes them way faster than all females. This 
I mean, and I think for the people who have participated in, you know, collegiate athletics and that sort of thing, in the general population, you do see these big disparities. But then within, I think, college level up, it's not surprising. I remember being at collegiate races where, say, it was like a 1500 or something and there were 45 guys in it. Um, the person who finished 45th in the men's race was still way faster than the fastest woman. And so we see this play out in all sorts of categories, like you were saying, and that's the reason we have a differentiation between men's and women's leagues is to increase participation for different people. So at that point, we're saying you're taking your personal decision and now your personal decision is running into the public world in which I also participate. And that's where I, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I would say it's funny to hear Michael Phelps stumble over himself. I think it's a real predicament that ideologically we find ourselves in where we're trying to say your personal choices now have a massive impact on the public understanding of who you are and the way that they influence me. So I think there, therein lies the, um, depending on what presuppositions you've swallowed in the past, that's where you find yourself having trouble with this. And also, let me say something here that I, I think will be helpful as we proceed in this conversation. Some of, some of you listening might be a bit frustrated already at this point. If you're Christians, you may be thinking along the lines of, this is pretty common sense stuff, Nathan and Cameron. Don't overcomplicate something that is so crystal clear. We're talking about matters of biology. And on the one hand, I am sympathetic to that. But one of the burdens of thinking out loud is that we want to try to represent differing viewpoints in a very loving way. We see this as an act of intellectual servanthood. We think it's really important. Really, it's intellectual hospitality. But the other factor here is we also want to help, uh, help make sense of why something like this, a development like this, which may seem strange in some ways and surreal, makes a lot of, is, is, is plausible and makes a lot of sense to many people in our cultural moment. So part of what I want to do here to, to kind of, as we, as we continue talking about this, is I want to say that it's, it's interesting to watch Michael Phelps stumble all over his words there, because from a cultural standpoint in the United States, it is very difficult to offer a firm critique against what Leah Thomas is doing right now. And the reason for that is part of the DNA of America is this notion of being a self-made person, innovation, the ability to do and be whatever you want, and don't let anybody hold you back. That message has been with us from the start, and it's gained traction it's only gained traction over, over the years, and we have arrived at a cultural moment now where there is increasingly, there's, there's, there's very little to stop you or to restrain you from pursuing whatever you want to do for your own self-fulfillment, especially when it comes to your identity. Now, Nathan brought up one of the, the statements I'll often make, there's no such thing as a, as a private act or a purely private act. There's no private act, period. And because part of the reason for that is all human beings are inherently relational. 
And so much in American culture tries to push against that. We try to distance ourselves from our family ties and from our own backgrounds sometimes. And, and we do that by trying to make our own choices. Well, I didn't choose my family members, but I did choose my friends. Therefore, my friends are my family because I actually chose them. I don't really like this name, so I'm going to choose my own name. I feel that I am a woman trapped in a man's body. So what would stop you? What would if you if if for whatever reason and there are a variety of different reasons, if that's a that's something that you have deeply internalized, what would stop you in our cultural moment right now? So again, I'm not trying to overcomplicate anything. I think there are clear answers here, but I'm saying from a cultural standpoint, I think we This is the logical conclusion of a, absolutely. Of a mood. I, right. It's the logical conclusion of, of a mood, and it makes tons of sense to lots of people, and it's just it's a it's an entirely plausible thing. I'm saying that to 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 try to restrain us a little bit when we when we talk about some of these issues. If we're speaking using terms like this is insanity, this is just craziness, look at what it's come to. May I suggest to you, and Nathan can wait, you can weigh in here too. Let's pump the brakes on that language a little bit. It makes a lot of cultural sense. And many of us, we may not be participating in an identity experiment this radical or an expression this radical, but many of us, many of us have our own, we, we've done our part to be kind of consumeristic, individualistic players in this culture. So if 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 you're in a cultural moment that looks very strange and scary to you, don't ever forget that you are here and you're part of that moment as well. I think it's really important to bear that in mind. So I'll give you I'll give you a story when you're talking about the the modern mindset of we can be whatever we want to be. And I'm not sure. I think maybe I've told this story before, but this was years ago. My brother was playing basketball in like a community league, and uh, one of the guys was getting worked up about something, and my brother made the comment. Well, it's not like any of us will ever play in the NBA. And this guy went nuts because he had a 12-year-old son there. And he said, I don't want to be hear this type of negativity. And I don't want my son to be around that type of negativity. Now, my brother said it was uniquely interesting because the kid was about as wide as he was tall. And I think he used the phrase could probably dunk a donut, maybe, but never a basketball. Um, you know, <laughs> there are certain physiological structures and limitations that we have that mean we I will never excel at certain sports also means I will never be a woman. I can't change my DNA and my chromosomes. So there are those structural elements and, and dare I say limitations to who we are and what we can be. But we do live in a time in which the self identification becomes our own reality. Perception becomes reality where this, let me give you two. Let me give you some, some thoughts here on where I think this gets difficult or more difficult is that everybody who has an opinion on this issue assumes that their opinion is the minority position. Hmm. So everybody, everybody thinks they're the one who, uh, so, you know, if you're the, from the trans activists, they think the whole world is against them for a more conservative, biologically def defined version of what it means to be male and female. They think, Oh, look, the liberals have complete control of social media and of the institutions. And we're the minority here. And so it's it's fascinating to me to, to work that out. I think there's a a serious 
this would be my gut is that those are the extremes and that in between there's, there's middle ground. So when you look at like the Penn state teammate saying, look, this person has an unfair advantage because they went through puberty as a male. They're massive. Like, and even with testosterone suppressants, they still, their muscular and skeletal design is a massive advantage to them. The trans activists come back and say, this is not about fairness. This is about transphobia and the policing of women's bodies. Now, be interesting to get some, like, where are the femi feminists at on this, where you can have an activist saying that this is about policing women's bodies when somebody has all their male parts. Uh, that is a whole nother conversation. But I think there would be people, and I would be in this camp of saying, no, it's not about transphobia and policing women's bodies. It really is about fairness. Um, and I'm not doing that out of any sense of fear, no hatred, no cultural warmongering. I'm just saying... When I look at this and I look at this, there's a difference here. And one of these has a, a different advantage over the other when it comes to uh, all sorts of biological things in life. And the other group has advantages over the other group when it comes to biological things in life. So I'm wondering, Cameron, what, I mean, what is your sense? Do you think that this really is all about trans activists and trans uh, phobics or are those just the ones who, uh, and, and bigotry and all this, are, are those just, it seems to me those are the ones who are getting the headlines, but in the middle there would be a huge range of people who say, well, I'm not, I'm not demonizing something and I'm not glamorizing something. I'm just saying that in a scientific sense, it is what it is. And we need to recognize that. Do you think that there's that bubble in the middle of the bell curve or are we just too equally divided or my, everybody or minority positions on this? How, I mean, what's your, what's your feel there of where we're at? No, my feel would be that it's more of the middle ground kind of position. I think, so I, it was several teammates who penned that anonymous letter. I think it was, I want to say it was about eight or so. on the 16. Si was it 16? And, and they might have signed it. Yeah, I think there might, uh, maybe it was anonymous. I'm not sure. Right. Anyway. Yes. And so, yeah, the response from the trans activist was, I cried while reading this letter. This isn't about fairness. This is about the policing of yeah, women's bodies. Very interesting statement there. And this is about transphobia. Yeah, that strikes me as a reading that's pretty off. Very clearly, I think these teammates were just concerned about the unfair advantage. And you've described it very, very well. This is spelled out purely in terms of biology and anatomy. And you, you even mentioned the figure figures earlier as well. The, the competing as a man numbers versus competing as a female. But again, what so i think i think you got more people who are kind of in the middle there who are supportive in the sense that they that they would say yes in this case leah thomas should be able to express herself and pursue her authentic identity but at the same time you know in this competitive context these factors are incredibly important and conspicuous. I mean, we're we're measuring this in terms of seconds here. So all of these all of these factors matter. But again, the difficulty is, and here's where you come back to that to Michael Phelps stumbling over his words. My feel is that Michael Phelps knows exactly what the right answer is here. He just won't say it because he knows it's a PR nightmare. But the, so let me, let, yeah. can I pick up on that? Yeah, and run with that do. a second. So yep. let me, let me zoom back on this a second. So hmm, two or three years ago, I was speaking at a church in New York and actually I've had this conversation twice. So there's a lady who came up to me 
and we got talking and she was just a puddle of tears. Um, so she had a daughter who grew up and then decided that she was a man. And so went through the transition, found a whole uh, host of online friends who support her in that. And then that group of people came into this lady's home and destroyed all of their family photos because in all of the family photos, she had dressed her daughter as a girl. And so you had all these because she was biologically mm -hmm. female. Um, and so she said, you know, all of our family history has been erased by this. And I love my daughter mm -hmm. and I want to support her and be kind to her. But does she have the right to change my history? That's a deep, I think that's a big and challenging question, isn't it? So it's when, when my perception of myself becomes the foundation for how you need to perceive reality, that's where people, I think, feel the tension. And so this is, this is true when it comes to pronouns, right? Because I think there are a lot of people say, hey, I would like to be identified as this. And to their face, out of compassion, um, and not to make a big deal out of it, people will use the pronoun of, that people ask. But then in private, would not use the pronoun and say, look, your perception of reality does not give you the power to dictate over my perception of reality when I'm discussing this, not in your presence. And so there would be a tension in there as well of the people who sort of on the face say, yeah, 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 okay. But that doesn't, your private choice doesn't give you authority over my speech and over si my scientific views uh, in other contexts. Mm -hmm. So there, there are issues there. Probably the best way or one of the most interesting questions I've been asked in the last, well, it's been two years now. We don't do a lot of Q and public Q&A during COVID. But somebody said, look, if I can choose to be a Christian and have my identity in Christ, and that's a personal choice, then why can't I choose for my gender to be something other than how I was, how I was assigned at birth? And I thought, ooh, this is a very good question. Well, first of all, I know Cameron's chomping at the bit here to say something about Christianity is not a, a personal option or just an accessory that you add onto your life. But there's another difference here too. And the difference is, is that when you become a Christian, you're accepting a standard of behavior that's outside of yourself and that transcends you. So you're looking, you're, you're embracing an authority and a structure and a way of being that isn't unique to you as an individual. In the transgender movement, you're saying that my perception of reality needs to become the predominant way that everybody else sees reality too. So those are extremely different things. Yeah. But the fact that we live in a time in which that question would be asked, I think highlights some of this tension of, A, how much of who we physically are do we see as ontologically inherent to who we are and as a gift, and how much of who we are is merely an accessory. I'll get a tattoo, change my hairstyle, get a few... Uh, piercings, wear these t-shirts, and I can become something that I previously wasn't. But yeah, why not stop there? Uh, so, so those, I think, are the elements of who gets to define reality in the way that I speak about it. That, I think, is where that middle ground group of people who say, okay, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm, I'm not hating anybody. I'm not scared of anything. I don't have animosity toward anybody. But it does seem like we're in a new category here when we're saying this is how you can and can't talk about something. And I think that's the thing that Michael Phelps and all of us feel really when trying to speak about this publicly. Yeah, if you choose something like a sex, sex change, transition, if, you know, any of these kinds of major choices, you are not simply making a choice for yourself. These choices have implications 
for so many other people, especially your family, especially your friends. Now, this is true of any of the decisions that we make, but some of the decisions that we make are that are in more radical categories have more radical repercussions for other people. And again, that points to the fact that you are in networks of relationships and they all have public consequences. But the other issue hovering over all of this, so Nathan and I are Christians, if that isn't apparent already to you as a listener, (laughs) that means that we believe human beings were made by God and they were made deliberately as men or women by God. And part of that is one of the ways that we, I mean, so that that is an essential quality of your identity. And it's not a matter of choice. Now, this is a conviction of ours. We're, We're stating that as a conviction. So that, under that reading, that is a very definitive view of human life. We believe as Christians that human beings are made with a purpose, that there's a that there's a telos to human beings. But one of the, the most contentious 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 issues in modern society is that we cannot agree on what human beings are for. This is part of what Alistair McIntyre talks about in his book After Virtue. He says many of our moral debates really center around the question, what are human beings for? And in, in modern society, it's very difficult to reach any kind of consensus on what, why human beings are here and what we're actually for. So, once again, if, if you have an absence of any kind of purpose to human life, other than the purpose that you bring, the purpose that you create, if there's no intrinsic purpose to human life, it becomes very difficult to really push against these kinds of these kinds of experiments with identity or these kinds of decisions and then off, also when, when we approach reality so let's take the question of of reality Re- Dallas Willard used to say reality is what you bump into when you get things wrong hmm. but we have in so many ways we we've moved into a world where personal preference replaces the pursuit of truth for many people or increasingly it's different if it's, it's difficult to distinguish between the two so back to that Christianity question which was a really good one there would be a serious point to be made about hey Christianity is just one more expression of personal preference if it were one more expression of personal preference but that's not what Christianity is is though Christianity is a surrender to something outside yourself as you said Nathan it's a surrender to Jesus Christ and Christ is the one who tells us that we're not worthy to follow him unless we first take up our cross so that's personal preference <laughs> waving bye-bye hanky in hand right there so there's something very different about committing yourself to Christ and to an entire vision of reality that takes for granted that you are not at the center of the universe and that you are not in control and that you don't define your life. And, I mean, you play an important role, of course, 
It's, it's your life. It was given to you by God, but you didn't make yourself exist. You're not a necessary being. You didn't choose to exist. And also, and this is a, this is a whole other conversation. We should probably have an entire episode dedicated to this because the basketball story you just told brings this to mind. A huge part of wisdom in leading a truly good and humane life is knowing your limits. Some of the most reckless and misguided and even... Oh, Cameron. Yeah. (laughs) You caveman. I know. Well, yeah, but some of the most reckless and and misguided and, and even dangerous people are people who don't know their limits or refuse to face their limits at all. We all have serious limitations. And... We need to. We need to understand. We cannot do just anything, and that is a very important aspect of being a person. So anyway, I've, again, I've I've brought in a whole whole bunch of other issues, but I think it's yeah. really what I wanted to draw attention to is that what are human beings for? Question. Yeah. So I there there that is, I'll say yes. Check mark. Check plus to all of that. Um, there's something that goes a little bit further, even though when we when it comes to talking about. Um, gender, sexual identity, um, and sex, because there's something that is so inherently sensitive about that whole category, which I would see all of these things are total gift to us from God and they're great. Um, so let's rejoice in the way the world is created when it comes to that. But there's a sense in which this one has an extra degree of, for example, I don't know if this works. I'm just making stuff up. The vast majority of people in the world are born with five fingers on each hand. And when I go to buy a pair of gloves, all of the gloves have five fingers in them or four fingers and a thumb, if you, however you want to count that. Um, there are people who have six fingers. Uh, Except for that guy in The Princess Bride. Yeah, so there are people who have six fingers. Just I, kidding. I had a cousin who was born with four on one hand. Um, to say this is what's biologically and physiologically normal does not exclude diversity in the physical world. Yeah. And so we do want to recognize, as we're saying this, that in some ways there are times when people are born in certain ways that have uh, external physiological abnormalities. I'm, I'm throwing that out there. And that doesn't make them less human and it doesn't make them more special either. It's, it's a difference that's not what falls within what we would consider to be the statistically normal expression of our physiology. But at the biological level, there is clarity on what this is. So the the fact is that most of our modern marketing pitches things to people proportionate to the percentage of the users of that in the in the customer culture. This one is different in the sense that um, there are, I don't know, are there more left-handed Amish women than there are trans athletes? Probably. Um, but we don't hear a lot in the news about left-handed Amish women. Uh, because it, it doesn't, those, those categories don't have the same, what's the word I'm looking for here? They, they, they don't seem to be as, as a f- much of a fundamental part of our identity as our gender and mm-hmm. our biological sex. Yep. So all I'm saying here is, is that there is something uniquely poignant about this category of diversity that makes it different. And I think yep. that the distinctiveness there comes from the fact of the gloriousness of what it is that it's intended to be. Yes, I think yeah, the word the word that springs to mind here Nathan is the significance of it, right? So Yeah, okay. Let, 
Yeah. Yeah, left hand versus right hand among Amish women. Interesting, maybe, but not as significant as something like gender. But also, you're, you're using another word that is a very important word, but one that doesn't sit easily in our culture, and that is norm. You're using the word norm. Mm-hmm. We could also use phrases like exception to the rule or a deviation from the norm. Maybe move away from deviation because it, it has some negative connotations there. But the point here is, and this gets back to the whole what are human beings for question I was posing. If human beings were made for with a purpose, if they have intrinsic purpose, you should expect a norm. Now, if there is a norm in the category, in all of these different categories of gender and left-handed versus right-hand, if there is a norm there, that does not mean that exceptions to that norm are less valuable or are in any way lose in in any way insignificant in terms of their value but it would point to a design it would point to a purpose and that doesn't sit well in present in our present cultural moment because we're so committed to the notion that there is no governing norm other than our own personal choice so if you have that now the Here's, but here's where we are running into terrible tension, and we're going to run into... There's only more tension on the horizon. This will not get easier. This will get more complicated. Because these kind... Well, because yeah. the NCAA wants to be a norm. The NCAA standards want to be a norm. Right. Any kind of standard has to assume some kind of, of norm, but because we have this view of self-expression and personal choice being the, the highest good you're going to find this coming into conflict with so many different rules and conventions in our society. And again, because we're not purely private creatures or we're not atomistic creatures, we are we, we exist as relational beings in, in very intimate networks of relationships and everything and what we do, our personal choices affect everybody else. Again, COVID-19 has been a crash course in that, reminding us of that timeless truth, that what you do in secret or in private affects or possibly infects everybody else. So you're going to see more and more of this. And that tension there is really because we can't, we can't, dis- we, 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 on the one hand, we want to reject any kind of norm or any kind of intrinsic purpose or design to human life because it flies into it conflicts with our wishes and our own desires but on the other hand we get very aggravated when we find it interfering with sports with some of our different activities and our different pursuits who gets to use what bathroom you know all of these mundane and kind of sometimes even chuckle worthy examples we're going to see more and more of that because when you step so far away from any kind of purpose to human life, you run into this kind of conflict. It's very difficult to muster an argument against it. And that's why I think as I think those the, the remarks of the trans activist on that letter by the teammates are off base. But I also think that it's going to be very difficult to muster a counter argument to what what's being said there that no this isn't really about fairness at all this is about transphobia 
and policing women's bodies. Because you see, their letter, it, the way it's being construed is, you're, you're trying to put some kind of a barrier or kind of a boundary or limitation on my own self-expression. And in this case, this swimmer's self-expression. How dare you? And again, yeah, and so I think you don't have many cultural tools. I think this, yeah, yeah, and but I think the so maybe the, some of the counter argument could be I don't know that it has been is that the sixteen biological females who wrote that said no, our public self expression means something also. So th there, I don't know where that'll go, but that'll be interesting to see. I just as we're bringing this to a close here, Cameron, I want to reflect on a couple of things. One is that some of this is not totally new. I mean, it's new to the degree to which it consumes our headlines. But, you know, I was even talking to people who kind of lived and pastored through the 60s and those eras, and you have extreme experimentation with identity and a lot of um, dressing in ways that were far more androgynous or um, weren't as clearly defined by gender. So I, there's some of that. There's also all the way back to the Gospel of Thomas. Is the Gospel of Thomas or Gospel of Judas? might be the gospel. I forget which one has, um, of course, this is not in your Bibles and there's good reason for that, but it's in one of those where Jesus has to turn Mary into a male before she can be saved. And you can see why I think the, the <laughs> church father's like, okay, not only was this written way after the event, but clearly has no basis in reality. But where would an idea come, fr come from that? I mean, how would that even pop into somebody's mind? that Jesus would have to change somebody's gender before they could be saved. And so I think, I don't know what your response will be. And in the interactions and the friendships and the conversations and the family members that you have that are wrestling with us on different ways, but it's deeply comforting to me to know that there is no favoritism in the eyes of God. I don't feel that I need to change that. Um, and even our sexual expression, uh, although our culture pitches that, as the pinnacle of human experience, Jesus himself did not participate that in that in the same way and was the fullness of what it meant to be human. And so I think one of the elements of hope here and one of the directions that we want to lean in on this conversation is to see the importance of it, but also at the same time, Christianity gives the fullest vision of inclusion into purpose, regardless of our sex of any other way of thinking about the world as far as I know. And so that's, I, that maybe that's a whole nother talk there, but let's just leave it at that of saying, I think part of the great hope there is that there's an invitation into community uh, that fulfills purpose, not just in a divine sense with God, but also in deep human relationships with other people. Uh, you and I both, Cameron, know people who have spent a lot of time uh, ministering to and befriending people who are transitioning or maybe even transitioning back in their way they understand their gender and how it fits with their biology and asking deep questions and wrestling. And I'm thrilled that there are Christian men and women out there who are doing an excellent job of loving and caring for and supporting people who are trying to figure out who they are. But we want to leave by recognizing all of us are trying to figure out who we are in life. This is just one uh, kind of unique element of it that catches our attention but the desire to define ourselves and to conform reality to our own image, that's a danger for everybody. Fierce individualism is an abomination in the eyes of God. That's not what we were created for. And that's a danger for all of us. So Christ calls us into a community of people who are loved by him and who we love for the sake of Christ. And it gives us phenomenal flexibility and freedom. 
to engage with the world uh, as we see it, as we understand it, as we can study it scientifically, and as we can make the most sense of it. And so, yes, I think we do need to be cautious. We don't want to start any unnecessary fires. We don't want to be contentious just for the fun of it. We don't want to uh, operate out of fear or slander or throwing fuel on the flames of chaos and confusion in our culture. But there are times of saying, no, I, I have a an understanding about this and I can be clear about it and I can have conviction and compassion at the same time. And that's so much of what we saw expressed through the teaching of Jesus and so much of what I want to shoot for in my life. And I hope that all of you listening are finding creative ways to do that. Conviction and compassion. Let's be those people who model Christ-likeness and invite others to follow him. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers, or make a donation, visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help. Just a reminder, for those interested in Dr. Sumner's course on the theology of evangelism, don't forget to give us a shout-out on your socials. We'll pick a winner by March 5th.